ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. The ice is gonna break! <laughs> and so we are back for another intermission podcast of no fixed agenda. Um, this month we have an assortment of releases for the cinema and the home. It will see us covering Gods of Egypt, Legend of Tarzan, Popstar, Green Room... Well, four films enter and one film leaves. <laughs> that means that there's still three films inside. That is the maximum occupancy of this Thunderdrome. We're on a budget. <laughs> oh dear, times are hard. That's, a, that's austerity Thunderdomes for you. <laughs> that's the post-Brexit world of Thunderdromes. <laughs> uh, so first, we will, I suppose, kick off with... Gods of Egypt. Uh, Craig, would you like oh, to give us a bash on that? M- must we kick off with that, Scott? Must we? Well, it's always best to get the bad news out of the way first, I think. <laughs> I'll take it from that. We're in broad agreement on this then. <laughs> um, yes, Gods of Egypt, Scott. The Egypt in question here being the little-known hamlet of Egypt in Oxfordshire, judging by the accents <laughs> on display. Uh, plundering the rich mythology of Egyptian legend for its inspiration, the movie kicks off with Osiris, played with native Egyptian authority by pasty Australian everyman Brian Brown, the King of the Gods, abdicating to his son Horus, Game of Thrones authentic Egyptian screen presence Nikolaj Koster-Waldo, uh, not so much amid the backdrop of the pyramids as on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury before an adoring audience of subjects. Uh, as a parting gift, Osiris, uh, Osiris rather, I don't know where I'm getting Osiris from, Osiris <laughs> announces to the gathered crowd that no longer will entry to the afterlife be subject to accumulated wealth, but rather based on the content of one's heart and the good deeds performed day to day as citizens of Egypt. So enter stage left Set, played by Gerard Butler, Scotland's own authentic Egyptian thesp, who is the brother of Osiris and somewhat upset that he hasn't been handed the reins of power. Notably angered by Osiris's commie death manifesto pledges, strident sole capitalist Set stages an overthrow of the order of gods, a coup de ra, if you will. Oh, Ooh, I see what did there. oh, I'm so much more proud of that than anyone involved in this film should be of their work. <laughs> in which he pokes his <laughs> in which he pokes his brother fatally with an ornate pointy thing, revealing that everyone in this film has PG thirteen certified citrus sunny delight coursing through their veins. <laughs> To cap it all off, Set gives Horus a going over and removes his eyes, as one does, which, as it turns out, is partly a scheme to manufacture some sort of Bronze Age Giver suit, but probably best not to ask. <laughs> Somewhere in the midst of this brouhaha, we have been introduced to Beck, a young thief blinded by love for his partner Zaya, who is sent to work for the architect of Set's skyscraping monument to his daddy Ra, and then killed and sent to purgatory. Uh, don't worry if you're not following this, because honestly, it really isn't important. <laughs> <laughs> Beck decides that to save his love from eternal damnation and be the big hero of the franchise that this most definitely will not become, he needs to snatch back at least one of Horus's eyes, and having done so, the unlikely pairing of God and Weird Boy Man set off to kick some unearthly ass. Now, if all of that sounds like it has the potential to be the setup of a thoroughly daft yet entertaining romp, you'd be right. It does. The problem is that it is not. $140 million is a lot of money for a studio to spend setting up a potential summer franchise without anyone apparently manning the quality control department. For if they had, Gods of Egypt would never have made it off the page. Uh, it's not that this type of thing can't make for rewarding Sunday matinee fare. Uh, just look at The Mummy for the closest 
comparison in tone, scale and optimism. Uh, no, it's that in order to make headway with this kind of historical fantasy trash, you need to have some idea where it is you want to get to and how to get there, as well as some vague understanding of what fun actually is. <laughs> Gods of Egypt tries so hard to make you like it, but has chosen to stack the deck so firmly against its own favour that one has to wonder what the hell director Alex Proyas was thinking when he took on the script. We here at Fuds and Film are fairly committed fans of Proyas, from the pretty decent The Crow through the excellent Dark City, which we discussed recently in our Technoir episode, and even the underrated Knowing in 2009, which was his most recent gig until now. Hell, even iRobot isn't that terrible, and it certainly offers evidence that Proyas does in fact know how to handle a mahoosive budget and still have fun doing it. Perhaps then it's in the seven years between that he has forgotten what the purpose of a summer movie is, because on this evidence you'd be forgiven for mistaking his work as that of a first-time director. Not that all of this debacle is Proyas' fault, quite apart from the aforementioned script and its terrible, terrible affront to what it clearly thinks is pithy humour, the casting of this movie defies belief. Much in the vein of Exodus Gods and Kings before it, Gods of Egypt drew no small amount of flack for its steadfast refusal to cast anyone even vaguely Middle Eastern, never mind Egyptian or, at a push, African. Now, there is an argument to be made that the whole point of this acting malarkey is to pretend to be someone who you're not, and perhaps we should be glad the movie didn't go so far as to black up. But nonetheless, the complete absence of regional <laughs> actors is both mystifying and, inevitably, downright offensive. Ironically, Gerard Butler perhaps disappoints the least, as he delivers exactly what you'd expect from Gerard Butler. Yeah. Shouty McShouting and his arms wide, chest out posturing. <laughs> that the talented Costa Waldo makes little impact is the greatest shame, and as for the top billing of up-and-coming, inverted commas, Australian talent, inverted commas, Brenton Thwaites, in a role that necessitates charisma, charm, sympathy and, well any modicum of acting skill will do. Let's just agree that the less said of his bewildering attempt at keeping his head above water, quite possibly a reflection of his career from this point if his agent doesn't come up with the goods, the better. By the time Geoffrey Rush shows up as Ra on his cosmic pussy barge, agitating one... (laughs) By that point, you just go, yeah, of course it's Geoffrey Rush. Of (laughs) course. Agitating one of the sandworms from Dune with his (laughs) fusion-powered boomstick, you'd be forgiven for assuming you were undergoing some sort of bad hallucinogenic trip either that or for being asleep we will not be seeing any further installments of gods of egypt in future of that i am certain box office and word of mouth will take care of that excluding the unlikely event of it making rain overseas unfortunately what has been done cannot be undone and while i would dearly like my two hours plus change back i'm afraid my plea to the gods seems to be falling on deaf ears do not subject yourself to this it is sh** (laughs) <laughs> Isn't it just? It's <laughs> I'm at a loss, Scott. <laughs> Why did we agree to this? I have no idea. Uh, well, I kind of thought it, it had potential because it has a, a general overarching concept that could work. It's not that bad an idea. Oh. It's the same as Clash and Wrath of the Titans from a few years back. It's a rich, some, rich mythology and one we yeah. have not seen plundered that often. Yeah, I mean, some, both those Clash and Wrath of the Titans, of course, were similarly dreadful, but I mean, essentially, let's do Jason and the Argonauts again, but with fancy CG graphics is mm. not a bad idea. Yeah. It's just that no one has been able to do that without it being absolute garbage. Mm. And this is, uh, it, it should be a welcome change of pace from all the kind of comic book adaptations that we get, get but uh, no, no, this is 
very bad. Um, I don't really know where to start picking it apart, to be honest. Um, mm. It's probably not the main problem, but I think there's an indication of it very early on. I mean, this film has a lot of actors who I either like or, at the very worst, don't mind Yeah, uh, for them. But as soon as Brian Brown opens his mouth... And- <laughs> Look, bless him, I don't mind Brian Brown. He's quite good in a lot of roles, but aside from I would love to sit and have a pint with Brian Brown. I'm sure he'd be a, a marvellous raconteur. I'm sure he would be, but I mean, Osiris calls for a measured, stately, regal tone, and that is not the primary fire mode in Brian Brown's acting arsenal. <laughs> just, it's all the way through. There just seems to be no thought behind any of the casting, and the CG looks. I'll give it this. It's CG is at least consistent. It's mm-hmm. consistently abysmal, but it's consistent. They've got a style and picture. Listen, one. some of the landscape stuff isn't bad. And where it looks a little bit where it looks a little bit um uh, overwrought, I think is I can I can put down to being a stylistic choice. Yeah. Um however, you're it's you're quite right. Are oh my old. days. The sort of transformations to to god form and such like I find myself just thinking oh it's I mean it barely it barely needs saying right but there's the I mean aside from just the general quality of it it suffers so badly from the weightless um lack of authority that pixel upon pixel battle to the <laughs> death by boredom <laughs> um carries with it it's it's um so by this point this sort of thing can be done so convincingly and so well on a fraction of the budget provided here that you just have to wonder where the hell has the money gone? Yeah. Um, It's obviously gone into this big CG bucket, but I don't think they've got a whole lot of value from that bucket at the end of the day. (laughs) There's a a hole in your bucket. (laughs) Dear Alex, dear Alex. I mean, even the, the kind of smaller aesthetic decisions that were made, like the... I understand why gods may be taller taller than humans. That does Mm. not seem to be a bad concept in general. But when someone saw the first composite of Mm -hmm. big, tall Jamie Lannister and (laughs) wee crappy that fella, they should have looked at Little and Large there and went, this is not going to work for a feature film. Let's (laughs) rethink this. But they didn't. (laughs) I get the impression that they were so happy with that choice that I actually thought, yeah, this is cool. This is our thing. This is People are going to be like, (laughs) wow. Forgetting that we saw this sort of thing in the Lord of the Rings films, what, about 20 years ago now? (laughs) Thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, Just just baffling. And the, the plot is just nonsense. (laughs) It's... The, the general concept of it is fine, but it's so hinged on this kind of charisma between and the relationship between your two leads that is just simply not present that I just cannot hope to hold any sort of interest. So by the time it gets to the end, where you know after Set has backstabbed uh, Jeffrey Rush for reasons I'm not entirely sure were ever explained, apart from <laughs> Set is a total dick. There's a lot um, of stuff in this that isn't explained. <laughs> Yeah, this is, it just seems almost impossible to find anyone who could care about this film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not going to be lobbying for that anytime soon. No, no. I mean, I'm look. I'm, in my later years, I appear to have mellowed to the point where I, I, I don't mind a lot of films as much as I perhaps should. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm almost tempted to make an exception to this and really start laying into it. But for most part of it, I was just bored by mm-hmm. the film rather than finding it particularly bad. That's his that biggest crime. It's just not fun. <laughs> but I mean, even if I'm looking at it through my rosiest possible glasses, this is still a very strong contender for worst film of the year. Mm. Um, there is certainly no reason at all for anyone to inflict this upon themselves. Yes. 
Just leave it. It's not worth it. <laughs> we we inflict that upon ourselves so you don't have to. Um, although judging by box office numbers and no, uh, it's just, yeah, you didn't you didn't anyway. Well well done. Well done. You're you're of an IQ considerably higher than our own. <laughs> Scott, you uh you went to see Tarzan, right? I did, I did. And uh, a quick search on IMDB for Tarzan will bring up I think a little bit over two hundred results. Uh, results, so we're not exactly starred for content in this vertical. And yet, at the same time, Scott, when was the last time you can claim to have seen a Tarzan film? Yes, certainly not recent times, and not with this amount of wood behind the arrow. Um, you got directed by David Yates, who, with the last four Harry Potter films under his belt, is the fifth highest grossing director of all time. It's got a $180 million budget, apparently, which is not a chump change. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say that buys you one and a quarter gods of Egypt's plus change. <laughs> oh dear. Still, despite all that, my interest in another Tarzan film was essentially zero, and it was only a distinct lack of anything else out of the cinema that saw me wandering into a showing. Uh, so I was surprised, perhaps, by my total lack of expectation that I enjoyed The Legend of Tarzan much more than the general consensus would imply. Hmm. We're introduced to Alexander Skarsgård's Lord Greystoke, or John Clayton to his human friends, or Tarzan to his eight friends, as he's being politely encouraged to accept a suspicious invitation to the Belgian Congo uh, for some years closed to visitors to inspect the supposed good works that the Belgian king has wrought for the natives. At best, it's thought that this is a PR trip to curry the favour of Congo's most famed adopted son, what with Tarzan having having grown up there amongst the apes after the shipwreck of his parents, uh, eventually coming to see the local tribes as friends rather than enemies, and marrying visiting American Jane, played by Margot Robbie. Uh, We're shown selected highlights of this traditional Tarzan origin story as flashbacks throughout the film, but I think wisely the film mainly concerns itself with an original story rather than reheat the old one. The more sinister implication of this invitation is that it's a trap of some sort, but American diplomat-slash-spy George Washington Williams, played by Samuel L. Jackson, urges Tarzan to walk into it anyway, uh, taking him with him to gather evidence that Belgium has been enslaving the locals en masse uh, to help the Belgian king exploit the Congo's natural resources, including its diamonds. It turns out that's not far off the mark, as the Belgian king's fixer, Leon Rom, played by Christoph Waltz, has struck a deal with a tribal leader, Chief Mbonga, played by Dimon Husu, Hunsu, uh, who controls a particularly diamond-heavy area who is also intent on taking revenge on Tarzan for killing his son. So the deal is all the diamonds that you want for an opportunity to kill Clayton. <laughs> Uh, Clayton, uh, Jane and Williams almost inadvertently give Rom the slip by leaving their boat early and trekking across country to visit their old home first rather than go straight to the port where Rom was waiting to arrest them. But Rom's not dissuaded and he and a team of mercenaries head to the, their village intent on capturing Tarzan and enslaving or killing the others. They don't quite expect the fierce resistance encountered but manage to make off anyway with Jane and a few other tribal members with the idea that Tarzan and his friends will pursue them into Chief Mabonga's grasp and so kicks off in action-adventure across the Congo, swinging on vines, assaulting troop trains, fighting the wildlife, so on and so forth, uh, all the time with Rom going through his urbane creep act towards Jane in the way that Christoph Waltz does so well. 
Skarsgård makes for a compelling enough lead to carry the action, and while Sam Jackson's not deviating much from the Sam Jackson playbook, that's sort of why you love him, so I've no particular complaints on that score, particularly when he's largely playing an exposition sounding board. <laughs> Um, it's yet another big budget CG action based outing for sure but if nothing else this at least looks very different to the usual urban landscapes that our comic book adaptations are so intent on destroying uh, If nothing, I'm sure time will eventually date the effects work but for now it's pretty good looking and the jungle settings make for a more visually interesting film than most of its tentpole competition perhaps the main advantage this has over its comic book competition is that despite the Similarly fantastical origins of Tarzan's abilities, the scale of the conflicts are much more personal, believable, and much more nuanced than the laughable attempts at the same seen in Captain America Civil War, for example. And Skarsgård, Waltz, Robbie, and Hunso are doing a much better job of portraying that than any of the Marvel crowd. So, as mentioned, it's much more enjoyable than expected. It's not exactly been a banner year for summer temples, to be honest. Uh, see, gods of Egypt. Uh, so, saying that this is up there with the best of them isn't quite the praise that it ought to be, but it's true, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, it's certainly not worth discounting from your viewing schedule, and given the current lack of any better alternative, certainly the UK at the time we're recording this, it's well worth going to see, even if competent and above average are about as lavish praise as I feel <laughs> I can justify on it. But the the way this year's been going, that's a step up from its peers, and oh. I'll take what I can get. Yeah, I'll take yes. it. <laughs> oh Lord, I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting praise, but there you go. Sometimes we almost all do the unexpected, and that is like a film. Does any? <laughs> <laughs> Does now obviously uh, being set in the the uh, Congolese jungle and featuring apes? Scott, I have to ask. Does anyone use a uh, diamond-powered laser to cut an ape in half in this film? Unfortunately, that is not amongst its uh, primary weapons. No. Right. So it's not that Congo then. No, it's not that Congo. Unfortunately. Shame. I say unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How unfortunate. Um, yeah. So. Something that's just showed up on the home formats is the, as I recall, quite highly acclaimed green room. Uh, Craig, would you perhaps like to give us a bit of a go on that? It's popped up on the VODs. Uh, Yes, green room. You know when you're playing an impromptu punk gig to a crowd of Nazi skinheads out in the sticks? Mm -hmm. What's a great way to get them on side? Open your set with a cover of the Dead Kennedys, Nazi punks, f*** off, you say? All right, (laughs) I'll give it a go. (laughs) <laughs> now, as fate would have it, the Ain't Rights, the band in question here in Green Room, Jeremy Solnier's follow-up to his critically adored breakthrough Blue Ruin, somehow managed to avoid being murdered by their crowd. However, it doesn't help their case much when one of their number witnesses the aftermath of a brutal murder backstage, an incident the club's staff and enigmatic owner Darcy would dearly like to avoid coming to the attention of the authorities. To this end, it seems the surrounding woodland would afford a lovely opportunity to set the band up as having trespassed on private property and become a late afternoon treat between meals that won't ruin the appetite of some Nazi guard dogs. (laughs) Sucks to be them. After a scuffle, the band managed to lock themselves in the titular green room along with one of the Nazi staff and so begins a tense standoff that plays like a reverse assault on Precinct 13 if the police were a punk band and (laughs) the street gang's Nazis. You know what I mean. (laughs) While praise was heaped on Blue Ruin, I personally found that movie somewhat underwhelming and its lead, Macon Blair, less than convincing in the lead role of Vigilante reaping the recursive whirlwind of his brutal vengeance. That movie, in my opinion, was overlong, overwrought and underbaked. Not to a critical degree, don't get me wrong, but certainly to an extent that brought me some disappointment. 
So then, when word began circulating of how intense and experienced Green Room was, I took it with a pinch of salt, and I'm glad to say this time round, Solnier handles things much more effectively. There is very little fat on Green Room. It seems the director now understands a slight premise needs not to overstay its welcome, and things here proceed with a satisfying pace that keeps tension at a high, propelling the plot along with enough momentum to paper over some of the sillier plot contrivances. If there's one thing Solnier has let slip from his previous effort, it's that the occasional brief shocking stabs of violence that punctuate the rhythm sometimes err a little bit on the side of silly, an early scene involving an unconscious character and a box cutter being particularly unnecessary. That aside, pretty much everything works. When I was told some time ago that Patrick Stewart was playing Darcy, I laughed. However, his turn here is compelling and most definitely shorn of any traces of Jean-Luc Picard. Likewise, Macon Blair, with whom I had some nagging doubt in Blue Ruin, is much more effective in a smaller but no less important role this time round. The great tragedy of the movie is, of course, the shocking and untimely death of its star, Anton Yelchin, who, on this evidence, away from the cartoon trappings of his role in recent Star Trek movies, was a young man of some talent the fruits of which we will soon no longer be able to hope to witness um, which is indeed a great shame but not to dwell on that for too long Green Room is an incredibly effective thriller um, certainly worth your time assuming you have a strong stomach for shock violence and I would heartily recommend it to anyone looking for te thrills uh, yeah there's there's something in Green Room that I'm stopping me unconditionally recommending it we're not exactly sure what it is I think it was actually more my uh, level of tiredness at the time of watching the damn thing rather than anything that it's, that it's doing because it's got pretty much everything I would want in a film it's really well written it's well paced it's well acted and it doesn't pull any punches at all so uh, I, I guess I have to give it the thumbs up in that regard. Um, as, as you say about Yelchin, it's a, again, a great shame. He always seems to be an actor that managed to get much more out of very underwritten roles than he mm. should have possibly been able to do. And so when you see him here, where he's actually got something good to get his teeth into, um, yeah, he will be sadly missed. Um, Patrick Stewart, yep, great turn from him. I don't know if it's exactly against type, but it's certainly a very effective performance, the way mm. that it's uh, played as a cool, calm and collected uh, rather than the kind of more obvious frothing, screaming loon pass yes, that this which, could be taken. Which makes it, makes it, it all the more effective, yeah. Yeah. Um, as I also had the Assault in Precinct 13 reference down there as well. So it wasn't just me that thought about that kind of thing. Um, it certainly, I think, handles the sudden transition into being a horror film better than uh, Bone Tomahawk did from a few podcasts back. <laughs> that's a, that's a good reference point, yeah. yeah very much make, agreed. It makes, it makes a very strange uh, point. Uh, almost exactly 45 minutes it turns into a slasher film uh, as opposed to the kind of taut thriller that it was before then and it handles that transition very well, I think. Um, certainly as well it could as it could possibly have been done to my, to, to my current understanding. Yeah, it's just a very effective little piece. Uh, the the graphic violence is, I think, in a lot of places, just a bit too much. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's some of it works because some of it is just disgusting in the the very the dictionary definition of the term, and that really does help the horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least the, it doesn't spend too long apart from me, or maybe one or two points where it's kind of fetishizing it to the point of the the kind of saw films. It's, takes it a little too far, perhaps, yeah. in a few paces. But that's really about all I can think of that, that would make me uh, uh, dislike it. Uh, yeah, everything else works pretty well. Um, a, a good cast altogether. It's an almost believable situation. 
and yeah, it just seems to work incredibly well. The uh, only the, they say the violence aside, so probably the most unbelievable thing about it is that any any punk band um, incorporating at least one Jewish member, as we find out, I cannot believe for one second would be so stupid as to make <laughs> that opening song choice at a yeah. venue full of uh, overt skinhead Nazis. But yes. uh, it's kind of it's kind of necessary for well. Kind, yeah, kind of necessary for the setup, but it certainly makes for an entertaining moment. But yeah, um, a, a very enjoyable movie. And as I say, certainly, I know almost everyone I've spoken to about Blue Ruin really, really enjoyed Blue Ruin. And I'm prepared to accept that I may just be the odd one out there. Uh, but definitely, everyone that I know is on board with Green Room, and I would, I would heartily recommend it. Um, but if you're not in the mood for um, quite such brutal thrills and spills, then perhaps you could do with some laughs. And Scott, you want to uh, talk a bit about Popstar? Yes, Popstar, never stop, never stopping. Um, this is from your lonely island there, composed of your boys Andy Sandberg, your boy Jorma uh, Taconi, and your boy Akiva Schaefer. Uh, last time they gave us a movie entirely of their own creation was back in 2007 with Hot Rod, <laughs> uh, a, a curious beast that's certainly much more enjoyable than its low profile would indicate. Uh, <laughs> One of my absolute favourites. It's not even a guilty pleasure. I love that movie. And I know I'm very much in a minority there, but I have watched it many, many times in the intervening years and it always makes me laugh. Cool beans. Uh, this is... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I similarly like Hot Rod an awful lot. I don't know why it's uh, been quite so ignored. Um, yeah, but, it's been uh, pilloried, quite yes. actively pilloried. Uh, anywho, the, the one time Saturday Night Live digital short crew have since gone off in various different directions and had some success individually, but nothing stellar. Uh, so it's good to see them return to the format that brought them to our attention in the first place. They're uncannily convincing music parodies. Uh, but in Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, which I warm to on the title alone, <laughs> Samberg takes the lead, uh, the lead as megastar Connor For Real, the breakout solo success of previous group Style Boys. <laughs> uh, while fellow Style Boy, Tagoni's Owen Kid Contact Bruchard, was a large part of Connor's new success working up the beats for him. Largely, he's become sidelined of late as Connor works with hundreds of new producers for his upcoming highly anticipated album. Uh, the other style boy, uh, the other style boy, Shaver's Lawrence Kidbrain Dunn, the one-time lyricist, acrimoniously split with Connor and has gone on to become a farmer and whittler of exceedingly poor wooden statuettes. <laughs> the, the emotional act, ar the emotional arc of the film, not that it is really the focus of it, comes from Connor's new album flopping, uh, leading to him eventually realizing that his crew of paid sycophants aren't really helping him, and the eventual reunion with his previous friends in the Style Boys, who much like the Lonely Island themselves, grew up together. It's shot in a mockumentary style, albeit one that, uh, one that, like the music, the group's musical output, is much more highly produced and slicker than the obvious touchstone of This Is Spinal Tap. If anything, it manages to amaze by featuring a group, a group of people, or at the very least Connor, who are substantially more stupid than the members of Spinal Tap, which ought not to be possible. <laughs> uh, narratively, uh, Popstar is never less unpredictable, but there's certainly enough oddball moments uh, throughout, sprinkled throughout, uh, to keep this firmly in the quirky descriptor and provide most of the non-song-related laughs. 
concepts like Connor provoking outrage by pre-installing his album on washing machines <laughs> or, or yeah. the, the Daft Punk-esque helmet created for Tacony's character that threatens air traffic by firing a beam of light not unlike Independence Day's White House murdering laser um, however, the bulk of the laughs come from the movie soundtrack, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, while it's every bit as good as anything they've ever done, the inescapable fact is that you can just listen to it on Spotify and arguably get more laughs out of that than watching the film. In fact, it's almost impossible to recommend anyone in any doubt about how likely they are to enjoy the film take any sort of chance of it, because the obvious first step would be to recommend listening to the tracks on Spotify or their YouTube account, and by that point, you've pretty much extracted the film's value proposition for free. So, if you're already a fan of The Lonely Island, Popstar delivers enough solid, familiar laughs to make it worth your while. Uh, certainly, I heartily enjoyed it, uh, but for everyone else, it's perhaps one to catch up with at home rather than seek out at a cinema. Yeah, I would agree. I'm not sure it's a necessarily a cinema experience, but um, it'll play a lot better on home formats. The key, I think, as well as being just gen- generally a, a, a funnier movie than I expected it to be, yeah. and that's coming from someone who kind of I have a soft spot for Andy Samberg anyway. Yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of the Lonely Island, but I do appreciate the 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 very as you say, the spot on nature of the, the parody they present. Um as well as just being a, an incredibly funny film. It's a it's a surprisingly warm and touching film as well. Um mm-hmm. and not just from as you say the the arc of um Connor's eventual um reconciliation with his bandmates, which is surprisingly touching in some fashions and comes with far less cynicism in its final message than you would expect. But also I think the the pop industry, it would be very any any one of us could probably incredibly harshly lampoon the pop industry with no problem whatsoever. But yeah. the key is that Popstar and the guys from Lonely Island do that very effectively, but at the same time, with obviously with a great deal of affection for the source yeah. material as well. It never comes across as being too harsh or too cynical. It's very much the product of, one imagines, a torrid love affair with the uh, with the medium, with the genre, and it is surprisingly all the more effective for that. I actually found, in my personal experience, that the uh, soundtrack was one of the weaker aspects of the film. Although having said that, um, so many of the songs that we hear in the film are presented really as, as short snippets and just, you know, a verse and a chorus here and there that I kind of wish there'd been more of them and I'd rather that we got almost um, concert performance uh, in the movie and, and the chance to hear some of the full tracks in situ. Um, however, there's enough material there in the songs that it certainly boosts the number of laughs in the uh, in the movie, if inexplicably some of the sections shown in the uh, the trailer, which was in itself sufficiently funny to garner my interest, aren't actually in the movie themselves. Um, As you say, it's very much a case of most people are going to know whether or not they're going to get any enjoyment from this, and those people, as you quite rightly say, will probably already have heard the movie's soundtrack already. But I would argue there's enough material of interest in between, um, including a (laughs) a superb cameo from Seal, um, (laughs) to to warrant your uh, investigation, as you point out rightly though, Scott. Perhaps not worth spending 10, 15 quid on a trip to the cinema, but certainly inevitably in a couple of months' time when it comes around on home formats, then it's going to be worth rented on demand for a, for a fiver no problem whatsoever uh, get a couple of beers and get some snacks in um, comfy yourself up on the couch and I can almost guarantee you you'll get uh, your money's worth of laughs out of this yeah like said, the only thing that's stopping me recommend it more highly is I know that my sense of humour tends towards the absurd more than most mm. people's and so 
the points that really tremendously amused me are little throwaway lines like when the, there's uh, Akiva's doing one of his solo songs about things in his jeep and one of the producers <laughs> says I couldn't really relate to that one, that song I had different things, things in my in jeep, my jeep. <laughs> which, which yeah. had me laughing for about 10 minutes at that point and consistently Absolutely. since having seen it so uh, I always worry about that as well because I think we we sh- uh, and Drew probably would as well. I think agree that the three of us uh, tend to share a, a broadly similar sense of humour. And I always assumed that yeah, that would be a limiting factor. But then you only need to look at how popular something like Zoolander was to see that absurd yeah. absurd comedy can have mass appeal if it's silly enough. And I do think that this is silly enough in a in a largely clever way to capture yeah. that same audience. And I, I do hope it goes on to become a popular film. I mean, I, presumably, it, I I can't give you a budget figure off the top of my head but it's going to make its money back I would hope so, it certainly deserves to one take on this from the Twitters we've got a friend Jeremy the, uh, on the Twitters at Fix Your Face who thought that Popstar was great a surprisingly strong throughout uh, on the premise that sounded better suited for a short uh, and indeed it does. It is the sort of premise that could easily have outstayed its welcome but I think this yep. certainly does not I would agree with that Jeremy so, right that's your lot. Find your hook and sling it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we will. We're happy you stuck with us through this podcast. We will be back with a full crew uh, on the first, where we will be talking about the Red Planet. We are taking a trip to Mars. Uh, so yes, I'll, uh, until that time, I'll simply sign off. I've been Scott Morris. Thanks very much for your attention. This was goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Craig. The ice isn't really going to break. No. Bye!